Welcome to the Assembly at Heckfield Place podcast. I'm Lucy Hislop, curator of this eclectic program of year-round events. A gentle Georgian home in Hampshire with 430 acres of woodland, lakes and gardens, Heckfield has always been a place to bring interesting and interested people together. Continuing this legacy, the Assembly calls on curious minds with a focus on looking forward and on our relationship with nature. Each episode features an edited conversation with our guests. As part of our Value of Fashion Month, celebrated designer Giles Deacon talks with Business of Fashion's editor-at-large, Tim Blanks, about letting his imagination fly and being a strong, seductive voice in British fashion. I've known Giles for, I don't know, through a few incarnations. Yeah. Um, I think officially for 1997. Okay, okay, that's yeah, that's 21 years. That's yeah. not bad. Uh, and in that time, um, he has proved himself to be one of British fashion's great original thinkers. Uh, his his creative process um, endlessly fascinates me because he is one of the great uh, one of the great practitioners of of of. British fashion's unique blend of beauty and horror. I think it, it, I think it is what makes British designers so original, such strong and seductive voices in fashion that they're able to embrace polar opposites, um, which Giles, I think, has done brilliantly and continues to do, I think, even more brilliantly since uh, he uh, put his ready-to-wear collection on hiatus three years ago to focus on haute couture, which gives him the opportunity to let his imagination fly relatively free of commercial considerations and um, also allows him to focus on the thing the things he loves the thing he loves most in life which is creating with his hands now in tonight's multimedia um, spectacular we are going to focus on the many things that Giles Deacon does with his hands um, making dresses, drawing, um, and other things, other nimble-fingered things. But there'll also be a lovely undercurrent of the macabre, which I think is really what I want to learn about with Giles, is how he reconciles these two things that make his work so striking and so haunting. Uh, first up, we're going to look at a film that... Um, was made for Giles's recent book about his long-term collaboration with the photographer Solvis Sonsbo and the stylist Katie Grand. Um, it's a beautiful book, which I can highly recommend. This is a short film to introduce the book, introduce our talk. It features the gorgeous Edie Campbell and the gorgeous in the equally glorious flesh Gwendolyn Christie, who has just got off a plane from Shanghai. That's how important this event is. So that's <laughs> something to remember when we're thinking, God, London seems so far away at the moment. Um, anyway, uh, welcome, Giles. Uh, he welcome, the countryside. And this now is the we problem. <laughs> he was moaning on the train about coming oh, to wasn't. the countryside. He was saying he's scared of serial killers. Yeah. Um, he said, he'd get, he, said so, he would get scared in the dark. <laughs> we're go and trees. We are, we are going to... <laughs> we are going to While asking me about darkness. Shush, we're not the devil's act yet. Now, um, could we please roll the film? And that will be the beginning of this evening's Charles Deacon extravaganza. <laughs> Giles, I want to know, uh, first off, what your first fashion memory was. Well, my 
first, come on, there's, 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 there's a question. I think in a um, recognisable fashion context, um, my first proper like fashion memory of, of wow, that was something, was um, seeing um, Paulie Yates in Newcastle in about 1983 when the tube was on, which is where they filmed it then. And um, my um, kind of not godfather, but sort of close um, friend of my family, he was the um, director, a gentleman called Gavin Taylor. And I'd gone up to see it. And um, she was standing upstairs on some scaffolding presenting and was just extraordinary. And that was something that I really, that was like, wow, that's like a fashion-y type moment. But I, I, I think probably my first fashion, I suppose unbeknown at the time, um, memory of, of, of like, drawing things was um drawing funny characters when i was a kid i didn't i kind of i draw people and animals and all sorts of you know kind of relative things to that and put them in kind of fantastical outfits so that was probably a first fashion thing was there any was there anything in your family background that, that no, led you to that no none at all my mother um um was a very um kind of successful flower ranger in the lake district in the northwest of england and um my father worked in agriculture what kind of characters were you drawing and how old were you actually you i think i was around i said oh, I, oh i've always drawn i've got um not sketchbooks but sort of scraps of heaps of paper from when i was 3 um, and I've always drawn from then. So I think the, when they were getting something sort of vaguely coherent, I'd imagine six or seven. And what did you imagine as you matured you would do with that skill? I didn't imagine anything at all. Um, I just um, I just carried on drawing them. I think it was like a, a sort of a bit like a, um, an artistic diarrhoea. Well, there's a note of the macabre. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bang. Uh, when... Your, your your drawings, which we will talk about a lot more, have have a very particular quality. Yeah. Of of uh, a sort of darkness, a sort of gothicism. What what attracted you? In uh, it's it's interesting. You were draw you you were you were drawn to drawing characters. Yeah. Because fashion is a medium of characters, especially the kind of fashion that you have created over the years. When did you put two and two together? That. The, that your interest in character became an interest in fashion, which became a career. I think that that really came into play when I was when I went to St Martin's. It was forming while I was to, at um, Foundation, which I did in Harrogate in North Yorkshire. That that was uh, it was coming together then. But when I really started to log together was then first year of St Martin's when I thought right okay um we were taught um very luckily by um we had fantastic um tutors like um Stevie Stewart and David Holler from Body Map um John Galliano taught us print Georgina Godley um of um of Georgina Godley world um she taught us as well and we were very much um encouraged to um you know do your own thing and really explore what is the things that make you unique and your creativity unique and what your voice is and if anybody was kind of sort of starting to form a bit of a, a gang as such of, of 
of a kind of semi-creative vision, it was very actively discouraged, and it was in crits, it was very brought down upon, which uh, which was great, I think, and it, it just meant that. So I sat next to um, Hussein um, Chalayan for three years, and you couldn't get a further like polar or aesthetic than mine and Hussein's, but yet we sat and get on very well, still do, and but you know sat next to each other, and it was and it, it, that was really important. So you, it, it, you were very much encouraged to kind of you know have you know dig deep and think about those things that that are important to you or what your experiences have been and uh, that have helped form your kind of cr potential creative vocabulary but that that takes quite a long time it's not something you just go oh it's that it's this it's that bosh done but you, know? you were at st martin's as a as a designer or an illustrator as a, i did um, um the ba in fashion a three-year course uh, of which um the illustration was something which you depending upon your interest and ability and, and you could get involved in as much or as little as you wanted really. I was, always, I was fascinated, always fascinated by John Galliano's story that he went to St. Martin's to do illustration. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And then ended up switching over to fashion. Yeah. Yeah, no, and um, and um, he was taught by um, uh, the same gentleman that I was taught by, Howard Tangy, um, who was a, a brilliant Australian um, guy who just recently retired and and Howard was really really phenomenal and um, there was a great wonderful lady called Joe Ratcliffe was around as well and um, a guy who I used to work for while I was at St Martin's called Colin Barnes um, who was a brilliant illustrator so there was a, there was a lot going on around all about around St Martin's at that time. At what point did your interest in the transgressive uh, kick in? The transgressive I think if I've always had that rooting around um you know the, the kind of the the otherworldliness of things is something that i've always always liked but growing up though where you grew up yeah uh, were you surrounded by nature red and tooth and claw and uh, totally sort of I, I was brought up in um in in, in semi-isolation um in the well the nearest um other um, farmhouse was about two miles away and um, the, my school was, uh, the junior school was about 10 miles away. So you were really isolated. And um, so I, my kind of days of, of not being at school was spent pretty much on my own, um, roaming around from eight o'clock in the morning until eight at night, depending upon you know the weather and seasons, of which you become very attuned to all of those and the comings and goings and the ways of world and life and death and stillborn calves Tell, and you explain know that. You, um well you just you can imagine everything that goes on and, and you know you're in a very um natural um you know lush incredibly beautiful but also very harsh part of of britain you know you you could be in the, the lowlands of the lakes and it's almost semi-temperate and you go up a fell and you're like eight hundred thousand two you know, 1,500 feet up and it's all bleak and as, you know, as wild as you can get. And that can be in 20 minutes drive. So when you say you were roaming as a yeah. solitary figure, were you sort of <laughs> prowling around the neighbourhood? In, in the, in the I suppose so. I mean, I just used to go and literally lose myself in fantasy worlds, really. Um, you know, well, not so much fantasy, very real worlds, but then imagine all of these scenarios that were going on relating to all of the things that you're scared of, the like woods and darkness and all those kind of things. I used to, I can sit outside in woods in, at night, no problem, for hours. This really shaped your sensibility, didn't it? Absolutely, sort of yeah, totally. The does. darkness and the, yeah. the sense of... 
I think so many things. A threat, maybe. Um, I don't know as a threat, but I just—I mean, I also used—I used to relish the fact of there being all all these imaginary monsters and, well, you know, kind of real animals that could be, you know, prehistoric or or saber-toothed tiger-like things. I used to really like the idea of them roaming around. I think I used to imagine all of these animals actually existed. I probably thought they did exist. How did you reconcile that with your with your decision to follow fashion as a career then where where well this is very interesting was this fashion fashion chases beauty yeah and, it's full of animals sort of refinement yes <laughs> uh, it's interesting that you I think now of course your first collection <laughs> yeah. in 2003 was all about Helena Rubinstein who yeah. was who was a monster actually, yeah, totally. in human form yeah i think that probably resonates with quite a lot of people i know <laughs> not not you tim of course um but um no the thing that i which you don't really realize at the time but the thing is that i i really feel has helped I say it's kind of it's 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 when you 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 can forget things very quickly i think when you're growing up can't you, you, you there's certain things that stick with you and certain things that don't and then when you kind of realize that there's loads of things that if you just think about them a little bit that went on or occurred to you and it's the same for everybody in whatever world you've been brought up in or come from all of it's that's the thing that was being kind of drilled into you at college was this this kind of searching and and then hopefully creatively intelligently whichever way it is draw upon that and to um and to use it with humor with savageness with beauty with intelligence whatever the thing or stupidity whatever the elements are that you want to play with and then make those and turn that into the thing the way that you then interpret your thoughts and designs so the way that you draw the way that you want to have backdrops done or you know whatever the thing is just how what that thing is that you like and to have confidence in that but you see i've always maintained looking from the outside that fashion design is a kind of therapy for the designer because you see people working out the wrinkles in their souls you know through their work yeah and each collection then becomes like a chapter in an in a, in a autobiography and yeah. i think in your work that seems to be a particularly sort of trenchant point because there is this sort of it, it feels that you're going as as time has moved on. It feels like you're going deeper Backwards. and deeper. No, no, deeper and deeper into. Well, I suppose you know. I mean, that I, I I think you get to, you, you know, when you, you know, I hate this sometimes talking about things like this because I always think it sounds so lofty, but um, the way in which that you. When you kind of realise, oh, I'm going to be a designer, which you sort of, you know, is a decision. <laughs> you know, you think, right, that's what I'm going to do. You then decide, right, what sort of designer am I going to be? Um, what interests me? How am I going to do this? What's going to be the thing that's going to give me longevity? The thing that's going to interest me for a long, long time and become a body of work. That was always really important to me. I just, it wasn't something. Oh, let's just look at, I don't know, the Maldives or you know whatever you know it's just picking things at random doesn't make any sense to me at all um so it was it, things that have got some personal meaning and resonance and have some um you know kind of kind of i suppose visual historic insight that you can work from that can you can then extrapolate and turn into things and then turn into gorgeous items or whatever it is that you want to do 
Did did that approach put you at odds with the industry, though? Do you think the way the industry? I think that's operates? for you to tell me, really, Tim. I mean, I I, I mean I do what I do and have done what I do and I think it's, you know you're never going to be for everybody and I think you've got to realize that very early on in your career you know you're going to have critics you're going to have people who applaud you and people who don't get it and just you know which have had everything within the mix of all of that so you know you just kind of take it all out with a pinch of salt but the, the, the but I think it's that in itself is the thing that as long as you're sticking true to yourself and your thing that you know interests you gets you through any amount of shit. But what happens in fashion, and there are so many cautionary tales of maybe the true geniuses of the industry. The, the, if you you know look look over the, I, I think of somebody like Charles James, for example. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he was a, he was quite an interesting example. Well, insanely wasn't? difficult person. Yeah, so actually, didn't make life easy for himself at all. But no, I mean, he used to sell dresses to. Um, I don't know. I mean, everybody's kind of familiar with Charles James, I'm sure. But I I, I know a couple of people who knew him. And I've talked to them in, in depth about what he was like and how he operated, and the stories are just hysterical. He would sometimes start off if he was if you were chosen after you'd been you know you went to him with a commission, um, he would generally say no, he wouldn't make you the piece. If he did, um, you had to wear whatever it was that he made. You didn't really have a say what he was going to make for you. He would just make in these extraordinarily incredible pieces. Um, he would if you. He would get them dropped off at their apartments. Um, this is invariably New York. Um, and then if they hadn't worn them within like two days, he would go up there, generally when they were out, um, get them off the housekeepers and sell them to someone else. You never compromised. And you made, and you made very clear decisions at various points in your career. Yeah. And I think the decision to put the ready-to-wear on hiatus and focus on... Uh, custom business yeah. was one of those very, to me, very smart um, acknowledgements of what was happening in the industry. Yeah, that to yeah. do what you wanted to do, you couldn't actually just surrender to that that treadmill totally. that fashion has become totally. for designers yeah. who get stuck in pre-collection. Well, it's all a choice, you know. And I think there was um, for a long time it was um, uh, if you were a, a, a had a design company or a designer there was it was a lot of years it was um driven by fear fear that was brought down by certain journalists fear that was brought down by certain um, department stores who at that time were like the gods so whatever they said if they liked you didn't like you liked a collection you know you could be made and ruined by um critics and from um from certain stores at the time, which for you know small independent designers could be really tricky, and lots of people did fall by the wayside through those the, those situations, and um, it suddenly got to a point where that was no longer the case. And the the point being was that I think it was the the fear that was driven by those two elements in particular that drove the insanity of the amount of collections that were to be produced. 
and the, the, it was mainly actually by the stores. The, the department stores almost killed that business, and they, they're, pay, they're paying for the price now because they're all totally screwed, those big department stores. As the, and they were all totally dismissive of the world of online and just thought, what is this business? That, well, this thing, you buy things off the air, it's never going to happen. And, the, you know, and so many of them were really slow in getting their head around it. Well, because what, what happened, what's happened with the internet is power is in the hands of the consumer. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that, has, that, ha that means that when designers can talk to their public yeah. more directly, yeah. they learn very interesting things. That yeah. All these years when they thought what they were doing wasn't selling, it wasn't selling because the department stores were yeah. bringing down these curtains. Nobody could see what people were doing. Yeah. Have you felt that technology has helped you then in that way? Um, absolutely, yeah. And I think just to, just to finish on that previous point, though, it got the, the, the way that the world then became, as far as I could see it, about five years ago, four years ago, was getting to a point where... Um, Everybody was in this massive state of confusion of flux. Is it show now, buy now? Is it in season, out of season? And are we producing more? Do we need to produce less? Do we need to produce pre-collections and pre-pre-collections and 18th drops and all of these kind of things? And I just thought, this is just getting insane. And um, the kind of situation came around where I thought, the things that people come to me that they want and re the, and the thing is that that i you, you you felt at that time that you were kind of being forced to design into that homogenous world which was exactly the uh, opposite of everything that i'd learned at college and had it been thought was important and interesting about you being a designer was the fact that you had your own singular voice and if I just kind of sat and thought and looked around about all the designers that I like and have liked in the past, and they'd always kind of done their own thing. And it maybe had been right at times, or it had taken a few years to fit back into a sink, if there is such a thing. Um, and I just thought, you know, the thing that I love doing is based upon, you know, craftsmanship and quality and working with incredible suppliers in the UK and abroad, but, you know, trying to make things as sustainable as possible in the making of them and, you know, working out that there wasn't going to be tremendous amounts of waste and and getting these, making these beautiful bespoke things for people. I'd always been really interested in that. And the way in which that you could then amplify that and then make that your own was something that seemed really viable and interesting. And I thought would hopefully have longevity. And I was at a point of age, I was, what, like 44, 45, that, I, you know, I want to do this for, you know, a good few number of years yet. And for the way that to develop and grow from an interesting creative level, that was the direction that I felt was right. So that's why I steered it off in that, in that direction. And you obviously have a very different relationship with your client when your business is like that. Yeah, absolutely. What's their response to the fact that... Well, they love it. They, they're, they're working with you in a very different way from they used to, you know, used to their relationship with fashion. Yeah, is very different. Well, it's it's really it's really fun all of that because they they the, the one thing that the people often ask me what's the difference between certain markets and or if you're in the Middle East where I was was last week they kind of you know what's what's the specificnesses about um, Middle Eastern customers and I'm like well you know the the one thing that everybody all over the world likes is the fact that they will get this totally bespoke world designed for them so whatever the events and, and then and they're interestingly not really interested in seasons either um they they it's very much event driven or an occasion and but they it's they want things to be non-available anywhere else in the world and to have this 
this this let's say this kind of bespoke world brought to them. But your clothes, uh, there's a grandeur and a drama to your clothes. Yeah, they're not really for wallflowers. They're not what? They're, they're not really for wallflowers. They're don't. not for wallflowers. No. And they're definitely But you can not be very quiet and wear them. People who are what? You, you can, can be very quiet and wear them. Yes. Yeah. You can be very... Yeah, you can be very quiet. You can be very quiet and wear them. But yeah. The thing is, when you're in them, you get your picture taken. You do not <laughs> You do not fade into the wall, as you said. Not, you're not a wallflower. Is, is there a particular kind of woman who wears these dresses? Um, they're generally quite good fun. Um, they, 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 they love, um, they, again, they love the world of quality. They have, a, a, you know, a, an interest in something different, um, a slightly um, off perspective of the world of, of design and fashion and something specific. They, they, you know, they come to us for, for the thing that we produce, you know, and they'll also buy from places in Paris or wherever it may be, you know, for, for other sort of moods. But if they're after a certain kind of look and style of something, they'll, they'll come to me for it. See, I, one of my favorite things about fashion, one of my favorite things about the way fashion has gone recently is this uh, huge faith and narrative yeah. as being something that, that, that people respond to. And I was just in the Swarovski Museum in Austria. Indeed, and yeah. They have a Giles dress, which look, which is the most extravagant sort of Scarlet O'Hara dress, which looks like it just got pulled out of a house fire. Yeah, yeah. So what's going through your head when you are making a piece like that, which is so standalone and, and so... When you well, I love that, working on those pieces. I mean, that, that's where the whole, whole kind of element of all of the, all the elements that I love about design and 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 the uh, things that you can bring to it really come together so you you have a, a for me an interesting story something that's incredibly beautiful that's in, involving um in fantastic work and work some workmanship and craftsmanship and all of the things that I've learned within cutting and fabrication and embroidery and embellishment and all of those things and then just making this thing that just you kind of I always want them to look at them and want people to look at them and think, God, how was that done? How do, how was that made? You know, and, and if I achieve that, I'm kind of happy. No, I would say with that dress, I'm staring at it. I'm thinking, why, first of all? And then I'm thinking, <laughs> how? Because the, the dress tells such a strong story, but it's a dark story. And yeah. it seems to me, if I think about all the things I've seen from you over the years, that the color palette and the... And the clothes have a weight, like I said, a grandeur. Yeah, and yeah. there's a sort of darkness in them. And it, it, I've always been curious about about the, the sort of fearlessness that, that that I wouldn't say Giles' clothes are happy clothes. I think they're magnificent clothes. But yeah. they're not sort of feel-good necessarily. They may, I'm sure they make you feel wonderful. Yeah. They feel wonderful clothes. But where, where, does, that, where does that come from? I mean... I think that comes. In, I think that really, really cemented for me when I was at St Martin's. Um, you know, I was good friends with Lee. Um, it was just—I don't know. Not that it was that was such a, like a specific world as such, but it was. That was at 1989, and you had, you know, you would walk out of St Martin's and you'd walk into Soho, and you could quite easily see Lee Bowery. You could see um, Francis Bacon. You know, it's kind of smelling of vim, and 
using, you know, boot polish in his hair and Jeffrey Bernard and, you know, all of these phenomenal characters were really, you know, that was where they lived and were, you know, potted around and got drunk and did whatever and clubs and, you know, so it was very much, I think when I, it was a very formative time for me coming from the north of England to to go from, you know, kind of essentially remoteness to, you know, sex shops in British Museum and, you know, clubs like the Daisy Chain and what have you, all in the same, you know, kind of... And that was all about characters really striking their... making their thing very clear, what they're about and what their look was. Um, and it was the same on the streets as well. That was very, very, it was very, very strong that that at that period of time. That that really formed a lot to within my, um, you know, about the the making of a look. And, and and that time too. I mean, there was an element of confrontation. Yeah, very in, much in so. The style, I, but also you mentioned Lee. But McQueen. walking around was very different then as yes, well. Very you know, different. if you did very wear different. something to what was essentially thought of as different, you would get you would get punched. You know, and, I, and I'm sure that's back. yeah, absolutely. I'm sure that still exists, but it's a lot less frequent, I think, I mean, as far as I'm aware, within central London anyway, than it than it was then. You mentioned Lee McQueen. Speaking of I mean, yeah. getting punched, I mean, boy, um, he would punch back. But the in his uh, the beauty of of a lot of what he did is that his clothes were like memento mori. Yeah. You know, the, do you feel the same quality in your? No, in your I. You know, I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I like things that live, and I think that's something very important within them. Even though the kind of references are very personal and, and often historical, um, I like them all to be very in, stuck in now and future, um, in in their reality. They're they're not about being embalmed or you know left to, you know, even though it's looking great in that gallery. In, in Metzing, and where is it in, in Austria? Is it Vatten? Vatten, yeah, in Erinsbrook. Um, but um, no, I, I, it's not about a memento mori. But the grandeur of them is is very. I, I wouldn't say it's. I w- I'd say it's a kind of. There's a sort of out of time quality. Which yeah, I find I, very I've, I've, well, that's been um, something that you. I've been criticised for, and also kind of again, sort of what people love about things. And it's I. I always kind of like to think of myself as sort of having one foot in fashion and one foot most definitely out of it um i never have ever really worried or thought twice about things like trends or any crap like that i just you know i just think it's totally banal and um i've always made just made sure that that you know there's no there's no you know thing is colors that are right for certain seasons and all that nonsense it's just I think it's just more the marketing tool, all that. How? But where? Where do you? Where do you? Where would you say that your ideas come from? That then for, for this notion of being half in fashion, half out of fashion. It's like the clothes, but there are also comments on clothes as no, well. No, no, I mean more in the respect that I don't kind of follow fashion slavishly in the manner of like, oh, we must all do this because everyone's doing sportswear. You know, I, I, it just doesn't, you know, that doesn't bother me at all. I, I kind of stick to the world of what I do and like doing. I mean, I think about Cristobal Balenciaga, for example, somebody who didn't follow trends, who worked outside worked outside what was going on using sort of monumental volumes, mm, using yeah. using sculptural forms in the way you do, that there there is a scale, and a sculptural scale. Yeah. Um, 
if somebody said to you, you're an artist, how would you respond? I'd thank them very much and say that was a great compliment. But, um, you know, I think ultimately I'm a designer, you know. I, 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 if that constitutes as being an artist, then I suppose it could be, but... But still, what, uh, I think maybe this comes back to you being such a good artist that your, your sense of the line, it, it's not necessarily uh, a line that's, uh, you know, like a, the form of the body, it's a sort of aerodynamic Yeah, I mean, I think, but this also comes in and off, back to um, the, the, the amount of time I spent um, at college um, drawing. Um, that way of looking and understanding about how clothes work and the space on and in and around the body in a, a 3D world and being able to articulate that in 2D or your ideas in 1D to 2D to make them into 3D um, was really, really important to me. And it's something that I've just really clicked. And I thought this is how, this is how my kind of essential starting points and reference points for everything can begin. It's from this. See, I find that extremely interesting because not all designers actually draw. No, I mean... Uh, that's that, very strange. Which, thing. you know, which is great for me. But that does give you a different understanding of clothing. That, like you said, three-dimensional. When you can, when you're drawing something, you're visualizing something you're about to make. Yeah, and also the character who's going to be wearing it yes, potentially. Yeah. You know, you can envisage the, uh, you visually um, render the, the the world of. Your muses are actually way off the beaten track in, in fashion terms. Like Edith Sitwell and Helena Rubinstein and Ottoline Morel. Yeah, Ottoline Morel, who was a wonderful one. This, uh, actually, this co the overall um, collection was, um, was, was really based on Ottoline Morel that the cape was in, but the original silhouette was from Edith Sitwell. And those of you who, I don't know, are people familiar with Lady Ottoline Morel? She was quite a, um, a character. She, patron of the arts. Yeah, patron of the arts and slept with everybody, male, female and in between. And um, and during the war, she had a, um, a a house in Oxfordshire called Grassington, which was where she took all the conscientious objectors and uh, sort of and Vanessa Bell and a whole Duncan Grant and a whole host of other people, and they kind of went and lived up there, and um, and had wild orgies. But what what they did, didn't they? They did. And it's yeah. funny because <laughs> they were so homely too. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's always the way to him. <laughs> I guess homeliness isn't necessarily a, a sort of antidote to orgies. Um, the, 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 these women, though, what fascinates me is they are not conventional beauties. In fact, by no stretch of the imagination are they even beautiful. They were characters. Yeah, beautiful and, characters. And I think your celebration of character in your clothing is, is very fearless because the volumes, are, like I said, well, before they're sculptural, but they're also very... There's something quite confrontational about them. The theatricality of the clothing, is that important to no, you? No, not at all. I've never thought about that. No, <laughs> yeah, I don't. You I, want clothes. Oh, my God. I, I have to pinch myself all the time. It's like, God, are you for serious? You know, I mean, I adore the theatricality of clothes. I mean, that, that's, that's the kind of fashion element that I love that goes across the board is the theatricality and the drama. And do, do people say to you, you have liberated me because when I'm wearing this, you, I become somebody absolutely, else. Absolutely, I yeah. can shoplift yeah. if I want to. I well, become totally. a different person. But I am getting. Um, you said sergeant, um, but, which of course makes me think about the wonder about the research you do. Yeah. Um, when you're when you're making a new collection. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I I very much um, 
I'll just throw myself into it as, as, as in-depth as possible, whatever it is. And um, I, I, I try not to make it just like one thing. Um, you know, there's always elements that, 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 you're, that you're kind of gravitating towards at that time or that period of few years or whatever. There can be certain looks and feels or directions of things that, you've, that you're really interested in. And so to, you know, to develop that and to try and broaden and, you know, and keep your own, again, creative vocabulary alive and working, you know, it's good to explore those areas. What sparks your interest? I mean, wh what determines the, the area of research? Like... Your next collection, for example, what um, what, what, what sh drives what 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 direction are you driven in? Um, I, I, it's it, it's it's a continual thing. It's it, you know it, it, I always think of it a bit like um, a mixing desk. Uh, if you're doing an album, um, there's all sorts of elements along there, and I kind of th imagine almost kind of think right, where do I want to push the base up on what's the things the treble going to be and think of what these elements could be within it and then start playing around with that and then looking at the research and seeing how that's developing and then I think god I you need to sit and look at things as well and work through them and see how they develop make sketches do drawings see films see exhibitions do further back research go back to things you've worked on previously we keep a really extensive archive I've got about 80% of everything that we've ever made um, in nearly in, you know, 18, 16 years. So um, it's great to go back to all of those pieces and see the good, bad and the ugly that fit in between. Would you, would you say, for example, you, you, you were influ influenced by Visconti movies? Could you well know, be, yeah. So the, the, the Leopard um, could yeah. be. I mean, that, that in itself was great because uh, I, I started watching that again quite a few years ago and that brought me into the notion of, of, of a different type of movement. So um, I work very closely and, and myself technically with all the kind of understructure of lots of pieces as well. So things like that became a bit of an obsession for a while to make something that could glide, that looked extremely decorative. And you just think, how the hell can that move? And it just sort of, you know, seems to live on its own, you know, like it's on ball bearings, that kind of thing. So what I, I love there's that element. And at the same time, Stephen Jones will stick a Pac-Man helmet yeah, exactly. on, on your clothes, yeah. uh, accessorizing your clothes. So there, there is this dialogue. I guess at the beginning I said beauty and horror. We haven't really explored horror. We have to do that. But um, There's this dialogue always between the elevated and the, not the base, but no. something else, something a little... I mean, I think it probably... camper maybe? Or? It can be. It can be that. Um, it can be a little bit camp in parts, but I think it's that juxtaposition of... You know, it's the age-old classic of light and dark. You know, it's the a language that speaks in art and film and poetry and writing and life and everything across the board, doesn't it? It doesn't go anywhere, that thing. Now, in that light yeah. and in that dark, are you conscious of fashion needing to be something at the moment, of, of, of it needing to give people a particular I, something at this, at, at this particular yeah. time, which is very confused and seems to be very dark and feels well quite I, I, I can only speak from the people who I work with and clients who I service as such they um they, they they're looking for things that have a very um abstract beauty to them and something very yes could be very seen as a positive thing they're not looking for for dark gloomy things no, they in look, that are way. they looking for escape do you think yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. I think it is a, 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 a you know alternative 
you know, they're looking for, they're looking for, and also we're talking about on the train, they're looking for something a little bit rebellious of sorts, you know, something that isn't of the norm. I love the idea of, of, of scale being rebellious. It can be. I mean, I mean, I've, I've seen, um, we made, um, a, a version of the cape dress for, um, Carmen, um, Bousquet. Um, and it was a, the front of it was turned into kind of like a crop jacket with a belt, but then the cape back was extended into a big train. And she very kindly wore it to a Caroline Herrera benefit in New York, which must have gone down like nuns' knickers. You have done very well by a very loyal celebrity client. Absolutely, yeah. No, and, and I've been very, very lucky in that the, uh, the girls are falling asleep over there. Um, Can you see them? Am I blocking? Them? Am I meant to be drawing now as well? Yes, aren't I? Are. My God, you're asking complicated questions and drawing at the same time. I'm going to make you eat a donut while you're doing it. Too. Oh, please do. Right, this should work. Well, I'm, I'm thinking in particular of your recent um, gig with the New York City Ballet. Yeah. I'm um, designing costumes. That was for phenomenal fun. Kyle Abraham. Um, well, that, he, Kyle was the choreographer, the choreographer. Um, who's fantastic. And, and has his that own whole thing happened because Sarah Jessica Parker is indeed, a client yeah, of yours. Absolutely, yeah. She and is a patron of the ballet. Yeah, she called up about um, um, designing some costumes for it. And um, the piece wasn't, um, it was specially commissioned for it. And Kyle, um, who I'd never met or worked with before, but um, on doing some research, thought, wow, I've lucked out here. So the thing I going back to the world of characters so say if i was sat at home doing some sketching around thinking right let's get some ideas together um this could be a, a really for me a great starting point for where a, a collection could develop um i could have a rattle away doing this um and then think right i know what this could be this could be a great diddle -da -da -da. Let's go off and research a whole load of other. Like Sargent, for example. You exactly. Said that dress was inspired by Sargent. Yeah. You would go and look at Sargent paintings. And yeah, and have a bit of a track down. And I, I, like everybody, of course, you can't get away from um, um, researching off the internet as such. But where at all possible, I'd like to go and see things in real. And is the challenge to find the modernity in those things then? Is that a challenge or do you care about that? Um, I just think it's more interesting to see things and think about them in, in, in real. You know, you get a different experience, which I think is... No, but I mean, when you look at a sergeant dress, are you challenged to make the essence of that something that's relevant to now? I or think is, that not, is that not an issue for you? Um, I think the essence of it you can do. You know the, what the feel, what feeling it gives you. I think is really important. And what feeling does it give you? <coughs> Excuse me. I, um, just a, I don't know, like a, a sense of excitement, I suppose, interest, intrigue, history. You know, is it? Does it? You know, does it interest you? Would you want to go and speak to that person? Does it give a? You know, what does it tell you about them? Does it tell you anything? Does it make you? You know, I don't know. I love it when designers <laughs> talk to me about about. Um, <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. Wanting to recreate a, a moment, you know, wanting to wanting to relive a moment that they were unable to be a part of, wanting to recreate that. I mean, Mark right. Jacobs seems to me a very good example of somebody who is incredibly good at 
dipping into like Warhol, Andy Warhol's factory, for example. Yeah. And making what he imagines the factory would have been like, you know, a much more elegant, beautiful version of it for sure. But yeah. But still, having the facility to do that, it it is well, one of the things. You're in a very lucky position to be yeah, able to do exactly. things like that, I think, which is, which is, you know, it's a fantastic thing to be. Do you feel the same way? Um, I mean, elements of that. I mean, I, I, you know, Mark very much, you know, throws himself 100% into like those environments as such, doesn't he? I kind of like to then abstract it so it's not, you know, they can be they're starting points. They're not final references. They can be, you know, they're, they're an avenue to getting somewhere. But like you say, you do you do something like this, sitting at home on Saturday night, yeah. and then you will go and find co-relatives for it. Yeah, or we'll develop or them from here. So you could then now imagine, like, what's the story of here? They, you know, the, what where, what, what are they doing? What, you know, you could, I don't know. Then what jewelry would they like, or what, you know, what chairs would they sit on, and go and research all of those types of things. Do you ever dream your clothes? Um, sort of. I couldn't really not not as a, not as a thought of oh, I've dreamt that I want to design it. Just them sort of burning down and that kind of thing. So um. That's, in essence, the Beautiful. how I would get a drawing together. So, but more of that tomorrow. That was an episode of the Assembly at Heckfield Place podcast. You can find out more about the Assembly by visiting the Heckfield Place website. And you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Heckfield underscore place and the hashtag Heckfield Place. Thanks for listening. <laughs>